Welcome to the Grotto Pod. We're here to do the Halloween or Spooky Gab Fest. And joining me today are Ben Marks, Daniel Pierce, and Beth Weingarner. And I'm George Higgins. We've all selected a book this month that we think is scary. So we're going to go through one by one and discuss our books. And at the end of all this, we're going to vote on which book we think is the scariest. So when you make your pitch, make sure you it's a good pitch. Why don't I have everybody introduce themselves and tell us which, which book you're doing. I'm Beth Weingarner, and the book that I chose today is Sarah Moss's The Ghost Wall. Cool. And then? Um, I chose Jill Lepore's These Truths. A work of nonfiction. All right, and Daniel. And I chose Shirley Jackson's novel, The Haunting of Hill House. Great. Okay, and my book I, that I picked is uh, Colson Whitehead's The <laughs> Nickel Boys. It's about a fictional academy called the Nickel Academy, and uh, it was a real school called the Dozier School, that was a uh, school for boys in Mariana, Florida. And what? really struck me about this was this character, uh, the main character in the book is named Elwood, a, uh, a young African-American uh, boy, a teenager uh, who lives in Florida. And to me, what happens to him in this book is like the worst nightmare that anyone could have. Elwood is a honest young kid. He's living with his grandma and he's a hard worker. He has a couple of, he works washing dishes in a hotel. He later works in a, in, in a shop uh, doing retail sales. And the main thing about him is he just loves Martin Luther King. He is so inspired by his speech and he has a record with uh, uh, Martin Luther King's speeches on it, which he listens to over and over again. He's just inspired by. He really wants to go to college. But what happens to him is on his way, he's, he's like hitchhiking to go to college and start off his studies. And he takes a ride with a man in this Plymouth and just gets into this car. This happens pretty early on in the book, so I don't think it's a, a spoiler. And the car gets stopped. And it turns out that the car is stolen. And it's very clear from the narrative, Elwood had no idea that the car was stolen. He had never met this person before. And next thing you know, he's convicted of a car theft. He ends up in the Nickel Academy. And this place is just horrible. The, the kids are, are beaten, uh, whipped for like minor infractions, sexually abused. And then there's this place called the White House where they're sent to be punished. And many of the, the boys just di disappeared. So anyway, I spent 28 years of my professional life as a public defender, and that's like your worst nightmare, having a client or someone who's factually innocent, and there's nothing you can do to protect this kid. The thing that's most poignant, I think, about this book is the idealism of Martin Luther King and how this uh, young man 
had absorbed these lessons and believed them just into his bones, but is in confronted with a world that is, you know, so so cool. That's that's my worst nightmare: doing everything right and then having everything go wrong. <laughs> it's interesting too, because the because uh, you know th there's so much in the culture right now about mistaken identity and um, you know people stealing who you are and stuff and in this case it's it's kind of this, the simplest form of that where you, you are accused of being someone you're not basically. Yeah, yeah that's the hardest thing is sometimes you can't always prove or demonstrate to others what reality is and I guess you know nowadays we have all this questioning about what is and is not reality. So that's one terrible thing about it. Does he recapture his idealism? Uh, you know, the, the sort of the poignant and the great thing about the book is that he, he is eventually sort of beaten down by the system, but there's always a spark of idealism, and there's a through line of Martin Luther King and his words, inspiring words that in the face of all these horrors never is completely extinguished. Yeah, so, so I guess that's a really hopeful, obviously, part of the book. Right. I, I guess a real testament to the human spirit, too, that even though they're obviously affected and changed and in many ways you know, crippled the boys who go through this system, at least Elwood, this main character, does retain that spark. Mm -hmm. I recently finished reading um, a book by Damien Eccles, who was one of the West Memphis Three. I mean, talk about somebody sent to prison for a crime that they didn't commit. Um, he was on death row for 18 years before he was exonerated through a very complicated plea. But he has a new book out about the systems of the occult and magic that helped him survive in prison, and especially in solitary confinement, that just you know kept him kind of intact. Ben, yeah. why don't you tell us a little bit about your? Yeah, I, I thought I thought article. I thought um, uh, these truths was terrifying, and um, it, it it kind of goes it it starts with Columbus and takes us all the way to Trump, and here we are talking on Columbus Day for whatever that's worth. <laughs> and what what the book hammers home throughout, I'm going to read a couple of quick passages. But what the book hammers home throughout is that what we're experiencing as a culture right now ain't new. And in fact, a lot of the, a lot of the antecedents for hate that we typically assume are, you know, we'll say, oh, that's Nazi behavior, for example. It, it turns out that, the, that that stuff is indigenous to our culture, too. And I'm going to read just uh, two quick parts about a couple of PR um, firms and, and people in the 1920s and 30s. And the first one, the context, it's around 1924, I believe, and Harold Ross of The New Yorker has just implemented fact-checking among his writers and editors. And so the passage begins, but if journalists were finding new devices to recommit themselves to accuracy in reporting, businesses were using the tools of public relations to make sure the press heard their particular side of every story. No man played a greater role in this transformation than Edward Bernays, a nephew of Sigmund Freud, 
who used Freud's theory of the unconscious to help businesses sell their products to American consumers. Born in Vienna, Bernays had grown up in New York when the war started, and that would be World War I. He worked for George Creel's Office of War Propaganda and traveled with Wilson, the president, to the Paris peace talks, where, he liked to say, his services had been invaluable. Returning to civilian life, he began a career in public relations, which he described as applied social science, but which the nation called the higher hokum. In 1924, Bernays met with Calvin Coolidge, who descended to the presidency in 1923 after Harding's sudden death. Bernays decided Coolidge's image as a sturdy, crusty Vermonter would be improved by glamour and so arranged to have Hollywood film stars visit the White House. Good propaganda is always an invisible government which sways the habits and actions of most of the people of the United States, Bernays explained. Rightly employed, it is a quick and effective means of producing changes of social usefulness. Propaganda used to run political campaigns would make democracies run more efficiently. Honest propaganda, efficiently applied, will save millions in the next political campaign, he predicted. Yikes. Yeah, yikes. And it goes on to um, talk about how, you know, one person who was rather interested in the work of um, Bernays was a guy named uh, Joseph Goebbels. And now we're into the 30s. New industries, new technologies, and the conduct of the war itself heightened long-standing concerns about the power of propaganda. Joseph Goebbels, who had completed a PhD in 1921, had been greatly influenced by Edward Bernays and used the methods of American public relations in broadcasting messages by print, radio, film, and parades. Goebbels had a device installed in his office that allowed him to preempt national programming, and he deployed radio wardens to make sure Germans were listening to official broadcasts. The purpose of fascist propaganda is to control the opinions of the masses and deploy them in service of the power of the state. Germans had attempted to employ Bernays himself. He refused, but other American public relations firms had accepted commissions to produce pro-Nazi propaganda in the United States. Goebbels hoped to sow division in the United States, partly through a shortwave radio system, sounds like the precursor to Facebook to me, um, called, and I'm going to butcher this word, called the Welltrend Funk Sender, or World Broadcasting Station, the Propaganda Ministry's long-range propaganda artillery. By 1934, it was broadcasting pro-German English and foreign language propaganda to Africa, Latin America, the Far East, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, and Australia, though its broadcasts to North America far outstripped the scale of all of its other programs. To the United States, where it broadcast in American English, the well-trained funk sender sent false news chiefly having to do with claims about a communist Jewish conspiracy. And then this part I love. Newspapers took to calling this sort of thing, quote, fake news. <laughs> so, um, you know, again, when I was reading Lepore's book, I, I found it just kind of terrifying that we were indigenously here responsible for a lot of the problems that we're, we're dealing with 
and it's you know it's it's easy to blame the Russians for hacking Facebook or whatever or, or uh, not hacking Facebook but manipulating it and it's that's true of course but I'm kind of wondering at what point we're gonna all take responsibility for um, what we've wrought um, in the country so I you know I, I again I you know I sympathize with the character in your story George <laughs> that you just talked about but for me this is really kind of terrifying right yeah, I mean, what strikes me is that this uh, idea of using rhetoric and persuasion to get what you want is just endemic yet to being American. I didn't think of it as, as being that pervasive, but when you were talking, what struck me is not, this is always going to exist, mm -hmm. but I think that what we lack now and what we need is, is a framework where somebody can be a referee. You know, for instance, in a trial, each side is trying to present the facts in the best way they possibly can, but at least in that, there are a bunch of rules and you have a judge there yeah. who's deciding when you're out of bounds. And it used to be maybe more in our culture, although some of the things in the article put the lie to that like the LA Times uh, yeah. was very biased in its approach, but at least if you have a really strong uh, journalism or, or papers, there's somebody who's kind of a gatekeeper about what's out of bounds and what's in bounds. Yeah, and the trouble of course right now is that the country literally cannot agree on who the judges should be. On anything. Yeah. 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 <laughs> anyway, that's my happy thought for the day. All right. All right. Boy, all right. Can somebody save us here, Daniel? Do you want to chime in here? I, 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 yeah, I guess I, I have something a little more escapist to <laughs> offer, which Thank is goodness. A, a, a book by Shirley Jackson. He's one of my favorite Bay Area denizens. So I, I know that most people, or at least you know, most of my students, know her for her short story, The Lottery, which is itself a, a great Halloween story that represents one of her main preoccupations, which is the sordidness and, and crushing insularity of, of small town life, which is informed not by her experience in the Bay Area, at least from my reading about her biography, but by her experience living in rural Vermont. Her husband was a professor at Bennington. And uh, just as a little sidebar, um, I know when, when the lottery was published, this was before the New Yorker offered the kind of like categorical framing of each piece. So it didn't identify the story as fiction. And so there was just this subscriber revolt. People just inundated the magazine with complaint letters and subscription cancellations and just general vitriol. But that same sort of wariness of life in these kind of pastoral idyllic areas uh, you see in, in what you know I, I kind of consider her masterpiece we have always lived in the castle and that was sort of my runner-up choice for today but I felt like on on Halloween uh, I had to pick uh, Haunting of Hill House um, and so the the book is is really set up kind of like a game of of clue with this kind of motley crew confined to this one uh, you know sort of Victorian setting so you have uh, Theodora the artist you have Luke who's the heir to the the house and himself a kind of 
thieving, dishonest, but you know, quite charming figure. You have Eleanor, the shut-in, and then you have, you know, last but not least, Dr. Montague, who's the, the leader of the investigation. He's, he's a man in search of what the narrator calls an honestly haunted house. <laughs> so uh, Dr. Montague believes that the, the titular Hill House is one such house. It has a history, of course, of lots of grisly deaths. And he's brought along Theodora and Eleanor because of their own experiences with supernatural events. And so I thought what makes the book so wonderful isn't so much the plot, which repurposes a lot of well-worn scary story cliches self-consciously of course but the 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 opening paragraph i think really just gets at what makes jackson such a a a wonderful writer and contributor to uh, revolutionary within the horror genre no live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality even Larks and Katie Dids are supposed, by some, to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for eighty years and might stand for eighty more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. Hmm. Nice. So I, I read that, that Jackson believed that this book could only be successful if she believed in ghosts herself, which she, by her own admission, did. Mm. And so I just feel like you get just total kind of supernatural buy-in in the narration. And that's best evidenced, I think, in the character of Eleanor, whose sections kind of slip into the, the first person and the reader is, you know, left to wonder whether all of these disturbing things that she's witnessing are, are merely hallucinations because she's kind of at this sort of supernatural front lines. When did you first read that book? How old were you? I was in my 20s. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, not, not that long ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but yeah. it scared the crap out of me. Yeah, I haven't read the book, but I, yeah. Uh, I did, uh, I have seen The Haunting, which I believe <coughs> the movie that, yes. like, early 60s movie, I think, based on the book, and Julie Harris, I think, plays the Eleanor character, if I recall correctly, oh. in a kind of a tour de force performance, but what I do remember about the movie that I liked a lot were all these very uh, unique, kind of quirky, well-drawn characters like between the artist and the sort of the neurotic Julie Harris character and then the professor. And uh, yeah, so it, that was a big part of the fun of it was these uh, really well-drawn, unique characters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, her, her, her husband who, who survived her was very adamant that her work be read as reflecting kind of Cold War unease. And and this seems to me to be just like, you know, the very gendered mid-century man thing of like, oh, this work can only be taken seriously if it's attached to these kind of grander socio-political mm-hmm. narratives. But I honestly feel like it's it's much more interesting to read the work as like very involuted and inward. But, you know, I mean, the, the Cold War unease, you know, may be there. That's just not my main reason for, for reading, I guess. All right. All right. Well, thank you.
Beth, you want to give us your pitch? Sure. Ghost Wall is a story told through the perspective of a teenage girl. It's not clear exactly how old she is, but 16 or 17. And her family has gone on a two-week trip to the north of England to pretend that they're Iron Age settlers in this region. <laughs> and they it's herself, her dad, her mom, and they go with a class of anthropologists, I think, from a local university. They dress in these itchy tunics and moccasins, and they have to forage and hunt for their own food, which in some cases means that they're very hungry. The first scene of the story depicts this girl, her, her name is Sylvie, bound and I think blindfolded and being led toward what seems like is a sacrifice of some kind. If you're familiar with British history, you know that the indigenous people of Britain were sacrificing their own community members in you know, supplication to the gods if things were going really badly. And some of those bodies were preserved in the bogs because that mud really nicely keeps people's shapes alive. You can see some of those in the British museums now. It's not clear in the opening whether they go through with the sacrifice or not. Some of this is a very traditional teenage girl narrative. She's kind of bored by the whole process. She and another girl in the class team sneak away to go buy treats at a local gas station uh, when they're supposed to be out foraging for food. They have conversations with the boys, but it comes out in the course of the story that her dad is really controlling and abusive, and it is his idea to go to this thing in the first place. He's a bus driver with a just a real passion for British history. And it's his idea to reenact the sacrifice, to make it like more of a an authentic experience for everyone involved. But before we get there, Ugh. before they get that idea, they do this other thing. So the title of the book is Ghost Wall. Um, and the professor describes the ghost wall as a a last-ditch defense against the Romans. They made a palisade and brought out their ancestral skulls and arrayed them along the top, dead faces gazing down. It was their greatest magic. And then there's a bit a little bit later where Sylvie is helping out with the construction of the wall that I want to read. And so she's asked to bring the skulls to the wall. I brought the small heads one at a time and hands cupped as if to receive the body of Christ the blood and bones of my fingers and palms a final brief protection. There had been mines there. Sheep cry for their taken lambs, and even rabbits know alarm and need. I raised each one as a sacrament to the ghost wall, found myself bowing my head as Dad set them in place. They made drumming as the eastern sky darkened and stars prickled above the band of pale cloud. They made chanting, and I found myself joining it, heard my voice rise clear, hold its notes above their low incantation. We sat on the ground before our raised bone faces, sang to them as they gleamed moonlit into the darkness. We sang of death, and it felt true. Away to the south, orange light spilled across the sky from the town, and below us a single pair of headlights nosed the lane. Why not, after all, make ceremony for the animal dead, for those we have deliberately killed? There is still a dying. So there's no outright 
scare factor in this book, but it has that sense of dread and horror that I find really effective, and it reminds me a lot of things like The Wicker Man, you know, where these people wind up in the middle of a pagan ritual where people are being burned, and also this past summer's uh, movie Midsummer, where they travel into Sweden to participate in some very old pagan ceremonies. That sense of both the practices being foreign, but also being very unsettling, that I really enjoyed about the book. The opening pages are just deeply unsettling. Yeah. And I mean, they, I, I, of, of course, I'm reading every kind of scary text through the lens of uh, Shirley Jackson right now because I've been <laughs> yeah. revisiting her work, but it does have that sense of kind of eerie placelessness and timelessness, even though obviously the, the kind of context for that scene becomes clearer and richer as the book goes on. There's an undercurrent in this book, too, of sort of like a, a nativism, you know, the, the old ways are the best ways, mm. and given Sylvie's dad's controlling and abusiveness, that takes on a really yucky air, especially right now with Brexit happening in mm. Britain, which is where this book is set, this sort of idea that it was all best before the Romans invaded. Um, it was all best before any came, anybody came to our lands and took over. But at the same time, there's something to be said for going back in time and understanding how people lived and how they fed themselves and how they interacted with nature that, we, that we've lost as, as modern people, too. But with that comes not understanding how the world works, and so everything is a little bit scarier. You know, you don't quite understand why the sun rises and set when it does, or why things catch fire, or why nature is so cruel sometimes. Um, so all of that is in this book, and it's impressive because it's only about 100 pages long. It's a very wow. dense and effective read. Yeah. yeah, I got through that intro. I didn't read the whole book, but based on your description, it just made me think of the Nickel Boys in this sense that you have this sort of rational structure of the reform school that's logical and makes sense and, and the criminal law. Mm -hmm. And then you have this father who has this rational idea about what he's going about, but underneath it are these human pathologies that yeah. are affecting these children. Yeah. So it just seemed really connected in that way mm -hmm. to Nickel Boy. Well, it's kind of the root of all horror, isn't it? Yes. Human psychology. <laughs> right, and also like children and being sort of helpless uh, at that stage of your life. Yeah. Which also brings us back to Mr. Bernays. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well I guess we come full circle. Maybe we could just go ahead and give our vote for which you think was the most, the scariest of the three and maybe the four of us, and, and then a little short explanation. And not voting for your own presentation. <laughs> So I guess I'll start. I guess I would vote for the Lie Factory or the Jill Report. Probably because I guess at this stage of my life, I'm, I'm not so worried about my parents <laughs> uh, controlling me. But yeah, the idea of the uh, society where there are these mechanisms in place and there are no guardrails or there's no control over it just feels to me really frightening. <laughs> 
I think I'm going to vote for Beth's yeah. just because George's and Ben's were so realistically terrifying, mm. which isn't to say that the Sarah Moss book you know, is uh, supernatural, but it does have that kind of horror novel sinister quality that uh, really gets to me. Yeah, I mean, I must say that introduction was just absolutely showing mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I'm going to go with Beth, too, because children getting preyed upon just seems like the line that just cannot be crossed. Well, and I'm going to give Ben's pick another vote, because as a journalist, I find it maddening that propaganda control can control people better than facts and true ideas can. And I've spent my career trying to steer people in the right direction, only to have many more powerful people steer them in a different direction altogether. Yeah. All right, so we have a tie. It's between Joel Poor's book, These Truths, and Best Book, Ghost Wall, by Sarah Moss. We're going to try to make this a recurring feature, and uh, we'll let you know what's going on uh, next month. And in closing, that's our show for today. Grottopod is produced by Susie Gerhard, George Higgins, Ben Marks, Daniel Pierce, and Beth Weingarten. The music is by Sugartown. Grotto Pod is concocted in-house at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco. Please review and subscribe to Grotto Pod in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, George Higgins, and thanks for listening.